Good evening, everyone. I am excited to be talking to you all tonight. And before I begin, um, obviously most of you know that the topic tonight is on friendship. And there's two groups of people here that I wanted to address from the outset. Um, the first group would be people that have embodied the values and the essentials that I'm about to talk about already in their relationships consistently, maybe for decades. And so tonight might feel kind of like going back to uh, the beginner's level. And for anyone here tonight without a your description, I would just say thank you for embodying these values. Thank you for consistently seeking to honor God with your friendships and your relationships. And I pray, and my prayer has been, that this topic tonight is really a refreshment for you, a re-envisioning. You know, it might not be new, but it might be helping you remember why you're doing what you're doing and feel encouraged to keep doing it. And there's another group here that I wanted to address, and that would be people that feel like they have a bad category when the word friendship comes up. Maybe you've been hurt by friends. Maybe you feel like you don't have many friends. Maybe you've lost friendships. For you, I would want to say, I'm going to be covering a lot of things tonight. And my prayer is that you're not overwhelmed, that you're not discouraged, that you're not comparing yourself to others immediately from the outset. My prayer is that, first and foremost, you remember how much Jesus loves you and the friend that you have in him. And secondly, I, my other prayer is going to be comforted and that you find just one thing, just one thing that you, that you feel like that's speaking to you through what we say tonight. Um, so before we begin, I'm going to raise this back up. <laughs> and I'm going to pray for us. So please bow your heads. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for these women. Lord, I pray that you would meet us. Lord, my words are here today, going tomorrow. Lord, my efforts, my energy, it's all temporal. It's all passing away. But your word is everlasting. Lord. Your word is eternal. Your word is what will stay. So Lord, I pray that tonight as I speak, the people wouldn't hear me. They hear me. They hear your heart for them. They hear from your word. Lord, and I pray that, that you would help us to be able to remove the temptations, remove the distractions, and be able to focus in just for this very brief time we have together on what you are saying to us. Lord, I pray you would comfort us. I pray you would convict us, Lord. I pray you would help us find new ways to change, new ways to grow. But more, most importantly, I pray you would encourage us. Lord, encourage us to do this well, to do friendships well, to bring you glory with our, with our lives and with our relationships. In your name we pray, amen. So, my first question is, and I used to ask this question with my friends all the time, if you were getting married tomorrow, who would be your maid of honor? Just think about it for a second. Or, maybe this question, when something really amazing or really terrible happens to you, who's the first person you need to get on your phone and text or call? In other words, who is your best friend? If you have an answer to this, I encourage you, write it down. Take out your phone, jot it down, put it on a notepad. Just write down your name if you have somebody. Now a different question. What makes them a good friend to you? Is it because you've known them the longest? Maybe it's because they know the most about you. Maybe it's because you feel like you can be the most real with them. Or maybe it's because you feel like they have your back. 
right, one last question. How do you know that you are a good friend to someone else? What standard are you holding yourself to? Well, the dictionary defines friend as one attached to another by affection or esteem. According to this definition, if we love someone and they love us back, we're friends. It's a pretty low threshold for friendship, right? So let's take it one step back further. Where does the origin of friendship come from? Who originated friendship? What was the purpose of it? And to that question, we can find all the answers of need in the Word of God. We're going to be hopping around a lot today in different places in the Bible. I'm not expecting you to keep up with it by tracking along with your phone. There will be one section where we're going to dwell on a particular passage, but um, we're just going to kind of wing it and see how we go. First thing we must acknowledge is that the origin of friendship, or to be more biblically accurate, fellowship, comes from the Trinity itself. Now, Nikki covered this last year really well, um, so I'm only going to briefly sort of remind us of some of the things she's already said. Number one, the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, they always existed in perfect unity and fellowship. They didn't need anything else to be complete, and it was out of that perfect love that we were created. So God exists eternally in community with himself. And so likewise, he's made us to be codependent on one another. And we see that most emphatically in Genesis when he says, let us make man in our image. Number two, we were created to glorify God and to enjoy fellowship with him forever. That's why we were made, to glorify God and to enjoy him. We see that in Revelation 4 and Revelation 21. That's the purpose of our lives. How do we do that? Jesus gives us a clue when he prays repeatedly in John 17 that we would become one in unity with one another. Why? So that we would be like him, bringing glory to God and enjoying fellowship. So, we know that biblical friendship or fellowship, it's not a mere blessing. It's not a grace. It's not just a gift. It's a non-negotiable reality. We were created to need it. We can't do without it. It's a part of our nature to want it. But not simply as a means of fulfilling ourselves, but rather fulfilling our call to glorify God. And similar to the Trinity's deep and intimate fellowship, merely attending a Christian group or associating with other people who are godly, that's not the kind of unity Jesus is praying for. So, it's important here to acknowledge that there are different kinds of relationships that often kind of fall under the banner of friend. So, for example, in the Bible, the Greek word friend used to describe Lazarus who had a relationship with Jesus in um, John 11. It means, that word friend means dearly loved. But, when Judas comes to portray Jesus in Matthew 26, he calls him friend too. But that word translates to more of an acquaintance. What you would say to somebody when you don't actually know their name. Which is interesting study in and of itself. And we know this from experience too, right? Like, we know that we can be close to co-workers or family members, other people who may not be believers. We can feel like they're very good friends or even great friends. 
But when we don't share the same faith, there's a level of understanding and unity we simply can't reach with that. So the real question we need to be asking isn't what makes us or others good friends. The real question we need to go by going back to what's the origin of friendship, the real question we need to be asking is how do I bring glory to God as a friend with my friendships? That's the question we need to be asking each other. That's what we need to be asking ourselves. And here again, the Bible makes it clear how we can govern our time and our energy. And tonight I'm going to be specifically focusing on biblical friendship, biblical relationships, so with other believers. This is how I would define biblical friends. Biblical friends are people who help each other see God more clearly and encourage each other to love Him more if I had a definition for it, that would be the definition. Biblical friends are people who help each other see God more clearly and encourage each other to love Him more completely. For the purpose of this talk, I'm going to be just covering the essentials kit of biblical friendships. You might have seen that in the description. Here's the essentials kit to biblical friendship. Confession. Correction. Comfort. And commendation. And that is a Tim Shorey special for you. <laughs> so these four things, confession, correction, comfort, and commendation, they must be present in our friendships with other believers. Things like compatibility, longevity, shared humor, relatability, they're all great, but they need to fall into the non-essential category. These four things are the things we must have so in the course of our lives in the community, we need to be incorporating these four things in ever-increasing and ever-deepening ways. And we're going to look at these each a little more closely. The first one we're going to start with is confession. I am going to be drawing a little bit more on this category because I think it's most often neglected in our current relationships. I know for me it can be. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why is confession essential? Because we're sinners. We sin often. And our sins range from the private offenses that affect our relationship with God and the public ones that affect our relationships with one another. Confession acknowledges this is reality. On this side of the cross, we all live a condemnation-free life, not a sin-free life. Confession is declaring to each other that we believe God can forgive us again and again, and we don't have to live in shame of our sin anymore. First John 1 7, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you will have fellowship. And what happens when that happens? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So why is consistent confession essential? Richard Foster states that confession brings an end to pretense. If we live in a world where we are not regularly talking with others about our struggles to overcome sin, we may not be seeing ourselves rightly. And we may not benefit from the whole gospel like we ought to be. Christ's death provides ongoing, 
ever-extending forgiveness. Are you living in the good way? Are you experiencing that through confession? So you might ask, and I know I have asked this before, I feel like it's depressing to talk about our sin all the time, right? Shouldn't we just be rejoicing? Well, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer challenges this by saying, the expressed and acknowledged sin has lost all of its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin. And our goal is to contribute to a community in which it is increasingly natural to talk about sin and to ask each other for help. Do you want that? I know I do. We should all want that, to be part of a community that makes sin less shocking and make grace So what is confession? We know it's important. We know we need to do it. What is it? Confession is taking every reasonable opportunity through community to distance ourselves from the things God hates and to pursue what he loves. That's confession. It's distancing ourselves from the things God hates to pursue what he loves. True confession is specific about what was done who it was done to. It's not saying, I'm sorry. That's not confession. So who do we confess to? Dietrich Bonhoeffer helps us narrow this field a little bit when he says, it's not the experience of life, but the experience of the cross that makes one a worthy hearer of confessions. And if you heard that like I did first, I'm like, well, that's not really narrowing the field very much. <laughs> But he's right. It may not feel like that is necessarily the parameter we want, but anyone who has experienced forgiveness for their own sins is eligible, is able to hear our own confessions. So we need to make sure that we're learning to not limit our confession to the people we directly affected with our sin or just the people that we're as uncomfortable as it may seem, anyone covered under the blood of Jesus is qualified to care for us in this way by listening to our confession of sin. To truly grow as a community, though, in this area, it will require us to be disciplined in two ways. First, we need to be discerning but consistent confessors. Discerning but consistent confessors. We also need to be gospel-saturated listeners. My experience with this has been interesting. I, when I was in college, I had a friend who shared with me an area of their life that they were really struggling with. But at the time that she shared it, it was sort of at the end of the dramatic season, sort of come to a conclusion, and she was more catching me up on things that had already taken place. And I remember asking her, why didn't you tell me all this when it was going on? I could care for you, I could pray for you. And she said to me, you know this, I wanted to. But I know you would have said. You would have told me all the other ways that I was saying. All the other things that I was doing wrong. And you would have brought me even more confirmation than I was ever experiencing. And, you know, hearing that, I was so appropriately humble and said, Thanks for judging me. Okay? You don't know what I would have said. I might have been great. I might have been gracious. And then I went home and I thought, You know what? She doesn't know that I am so gracious. I'm so so kind. 
I'm just going to have to be like even more kind than I've already been. And I remember making like consistent efforts when other people were talking to me and sharing their struggles of being like extremely kind and forbearing and gentle. And then a few months later, uh, we were at my family's house. It was my birthday dinner. And we have this tradition where we go around to the offer encouragements to whoever's birthday it is. It was my turn, obviously. So I remember my first time he said, um, you know, Miss, I just feel like lately you've been growing in kindness. Like, when I, when I tell you ways that I'm struggling, you're just, you're not really heavy-handed like you used to be. You thought, like, okay. And then the next thing he goes, she's like, yeah, I'm actually going to say the same thing. Like, you're just very gracious, and when I open up to you about ways that I'm struggling, you just find me the cross, and you don't just come down on me with all the ways that I'm saying it. And I was like, and then finally, my dad goes, you know, he's like, uh, Miss, you know, you've been very good at being able to hold out for people the holiness that God requires. But you're not as good as this in the grace that He provides as well. And I was like, yes, that's me, this is my life. <laughs> so I just remember that being very humbling. That it's not just about my own ability to confess, but how am I listening and receiving other people's confession of sin? Humility is just as much required to me as a listener as a confessor. Both require humility. Gospel informed humility. It's vital for the health of our friendships that we get this right. So let me ask you these questions. When is the last time you confess these? Specific sin to someone? Are your friendships marked by the practice of confession in which you all participate? Are your friendships safe havens for sin or safe havens for sinners to experience God's forgiveness and mercy through regular confession? Alright, we're going to move on to correction. So, you know, great. One, two. Correction. By the Bible refers to this as admonishment, and we can clearly see this practice applied in Paul's letters to churches. His love for the gospel to be clear and the character of God to be remaining untarnished compels him to address the sins and shortcomings of his fellow believers. And like Paul, we have that responsibility towards one another. We need each other to see ourselves and our actions. Sin's very essence is defiance and deceit. It claims to be what it isn't, and it promises to provide what it can't. We see this in Genesis. The serpent tells Eve that if she takes by the apple, it's not really disobeying God, which it is, and that she'll be made like God, which she won't. We need to be what Adam wasn't for Eve, friends who tell the truth. As much as we can hate to do it or to receive it, biblical admonishment or even rebuke is an element of biblical friendship that we cannot do without. It's actually one of the primary purposes of friendship. Why? Because the very basis of biblical correction is rooted in love for one another. Is more qualified to love us like that than people who have known love. 
following Jesus. We need to have friends and be friends to do this well. So let's first talk about the biblical way to bring a friend in a correction. Or someone saying an observation, I'm like I'm a softer way of saying it. Biblical correction must be loving. If you have a Bible or you use a few Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be looking at 1 through 8. This is, should be our mandatory checklist for our thoughts before we share them. Our corrections before we share them. This should be the checklist. This passage is often used in weddings. And I find that interesting because it's not limited to marital relationships. This passage is talking about how we should love all people. So I'm going to do a sort of a practice one of how to bring someone to correction using this checklist. First, this is again 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. Love is patient. Am I being careful not to rush to conclusions or judgments without asking questions? First off, love is kind. Is there a best time or place to share what I'm seeing? Have I believed the best about this person? Love is not envious. Do I desire a personal benefit from this more than having a heart motivated for their good? Not boastful. Am I remembering my own weaknesses and coming to them in humility as a fellow sinner? It does not insist on its own way. Am I planning on making demands for change that are not rooted in the Word of God? Or am I making room for His will to be? Am I allowing this observation to stew bitter thoughts in my mind? It rejoices in truth. And I am prepared to share the hope of the gospel with this person. It bears, believes, hopes, endures all things. If nothing changes, am I ready, as far as I am able, to continue to love that person? Never fails. Am I relying on my own strength to get this fixed? Or am I pointing this close to a for Jesus? If you can make it through that checklist, then you can prayerfully move forward to share your concerns with your friends. Do you see that correction is not a hall pass for going to somebody about what bothers us about them? Biblical correction at its core is focused on how we honor. So, how does the Bible dictate we receive correction? Well, we need to listen to this in light of the gospel. We need to remember that no one can say anything to us more damning than the cross already has. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 says that we are liars if we deny even the possibility of sin. So, even if the correction is brought poorly, or uncharitably, or unfairly, we are responsible to sift through that dirt and mine the gold up. So we must hear others thoughtfully and humbly and soberly. But the cross doesn't just speak to the reality of sin in our lives, but it also speaks to the power of God to forgive and redeem us. One reason I think we don't often excel at this, both like the giving and the receiving of correction, is for the shame. We don't like making people feel bad, and we don't like being made to feel bad. But we need to remember that neglecting this aspect of friendship with one another is like saying, I've never experienced all of the love of God. I'm good with this part. Why? Because the Lord disciplines those who love. 
part of his love is his discipline. And the gospel allows us to give and receive loving correction under the protection of the cross. No one is beyond the region. And no sin is greater than the victory it won. We have to bring everything back to the foot of the cross. What we say and what is said. And then we can rejoice that we can leave it there. The cross covers us. Whether the corrections are false or true, poorly given, poorly received, everything is covered by the blood of Jesus. We can repent and experience real forgiveness and mercy and the Holy Spirit's power to change. We don't have to live in condemnation when someone tells us something about ourselves that's true and hard to hear. We need to stop wasting our time cloaking ourselves in our own defenses when we have the blood of Jesus ready to cover us, don't we? So let me ask you these questions. Do you think through the call to biblical love before you bring courage? Do you gossip and slander to others when you should be going directly to that friend? When a friend challenges you, do you thank them for caring for you? Or do you treat them like somebody who is against you? Ladies, we need to be a community of friends where correction So we're going to move on to comfort and caring. Paul Tripp says, There is never a day when we do not counsel one another. Whether you feel equipped to do it or not, we are at war in a world that is not as it should be. And sometimes that fight gets bloody. And there is never a time you are more like Christ than enduring the walk on the whole kind of suffering. It is where God tends to do His greatest and most complicated work in our lives. Staying committed to a friend in suffering is one of the clearest ways you can embody the love of Christ. A wise man, my father, once said, the one essential ingredient of biblical counseling is biblical love. You may not have much, but if you have biblical love to offer your friend, that's all you need. How do we apply biblical love practically as we care for one another as friends? Here's just a few ways that you can do it. This could be a whole message in and of itself, I promise it won't be. Number one, we weep freely. The Bible is filled with lens. There are whole psalms dedicated just to the biblical practice of lamenting, of crying out to God. We see this especially when Jesus weeps over Lazarus' death, he knows he's going to raise him from the dead. He knows he's going to make it right. And he still weeps. He mourns. We must mourn. Not as those who have no hope, but those who know that as much as this world grieves us, it grieves our maker even more. And we need to remember this in our own suffering and allow others time to lament without shame. Secondly, we listen as we linger. Our instinct, often, when faced with trial, especially prolonged trial, is to find the answer, 
to apply the perfect bomb, to heal the wound, to fix the problem. God often keeps us in places of dependence on Him through mystery. And the focus on the remedy can often become a blindness to His activity. We need to listen to others as they share their experiences and how it's affecting them. We need to get comfortable staying in that place, that place of mystery with one another, not rushing through. As God does the slow and steady work of redeeming all of us. Jesus came to us and he dwelt with us. He came and he stayed. He lived in our broken world so that we would know his And when he goes, he sent his Holy Spirit as a comforter so we will always feel his presence. He hears us and he is with us. So unlike the disciples who napped when the night hours were long, we need to stay awake. We need to be vigilant with one another, patiently listening and then with those who Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He intercedes for us. Even when it's the same words, the same prayers, over and over and over again. So should we pray for one another. Instead of finding the perfect words to say, pray for wisdom from above, pray for the perfect peace and rule in the hearts and minds of the people who are speaking in while Job was trying to engage with God, his friends kept coming in and interjecting their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own answers. And it led to more stress and discouragement. We need to spend less time offering advice and more time praying for this God. So let me ask you these questions. Do you allow your friends to space Are you quick to speak into their struggles instead of waiting on the Lord together? Do you have patience to labor with them in the For anyone suffering in your life, have you let others in on your pain to experience for yourself the tangible love of Christ for you? Have you prayed aloud together as friends? These are ways we can be comforting. Finally, commendation. Of the other three we've already covered, all those other essential categories are only essential this side of heaven. Once in eternity, we won't need to correct one another. We won't need to confess one another. We won't need to comfort each other. This last one, commendation, we'll be doing this forever. This one carries into eternity. So let's get good at it here. Let's start practicing it now. So if you're like me, when you think of encouragement, you can kind of think, okay, out of all three of those, maybe I'm not the great of the others, but this one I got. I'm good at this one. Pretty confident. I've got that part of the friendship down. It can't be that hard, right? But the biblical command to encourage one another is more than just saying nice things. It's even more than commending someone for something they did well. 
Biblical encouragement needs to have an eternal perspective. Remember, it's doing it into eternity, so we're having that eternal perspective in mind when we curse. First Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you are doing. Here, the Greek for encourage means literally to exhort. Paul isn't saying puff each other up, or even saying give yourselves a pat on the back. He is saying if someone is doing well, encourage them to keep doing it. Matthew Henry puts it like this. Those who do that which is good have even further need of exhortations to excite them to do good, to do more good, as well as to continue in the doing the good that they already do. Encouragements are the Gatorade miracle. Also, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Moses speaks of encouraging Joshua as he prepares to succeed him as the leader in Israel. The word that he uses to encourage Joshua means literally to strengthen or embolden, to fortify in faith. Encouragement should be used to steal one another for the battles we're facing and the ones that are coming. It's interesting, too, how Moses takes the time to recount the faithfulness of God in the past as the basis for how people are to encourage Joshua heading into the future. Encouragement isn't saying, you got this. Encouragement is saying, God's got this. Encouragement is not saying, you're going to be fine. It's saying, God's going to be faithful. Biblical encouragement should always be pointing others away from their own abilities to instead the power of God. That might seem counterintuitive, but it's not. That's the purpose of it. Biblical encouragement is commending God to one another in the specific ways we see Him at work in each other. Think about that. Encouragement is commending God to one another in the ways we see Him at work in their life. So here's an example of that. If, something, if someone does something thoughtful for you, one day Tia brought me coffee unexpectedly. I didn't do a great job of encouraging you, but someone encouraged you now, the right way. Uh, instead of just saying, thank you for your thoughtfulness, or you're so great, we can say something like, thank you for showing Christ's love for me that day, for showing that he cares for you by your thoughtfulness to If someone excels at something, take time to celebrate how God gave them a wonderful gift that you experienced the benefit of. Do you see the difference between encouragement and compliments? Compliments convey a temporal, passing sense of niceness. This moment, this here and now, you're great. Encouragements need to be more. They are designed to bolster us. They need to have an effect on our souls. That's biblical encouragement. It's pointing past the good we see in someone. It's the giver of good gifts. So just as we need to be consistent in the other three essential elements of friendship, we need to be even more so with this. Why? Because the best way to defeat darkness is the point. What better way to combat the lie that God is distant than to be hearing how somebody sees his activity in What better way to discourage 
the wrong behaviors that we're tempted to do, than by showing encouragement and kindness for the good that we're doing. And I think this is especially true for moms. We can tend to be either effusive in our encouragements with our kids, sort of everything they do is great, or we can be on the opposite side where I just feel like all my kid is doing is messing things up and doing it wrong and I don't know how to fix them. I think that we can get an example here from Paul. He writes to the Corinthians and what he does in 1 Corinthians, his letter is essentially a response to ways that they are falling apart. <laughs> they are literally failing in every way. Here's just some of them. And Tim even mentioned this this week. They allowed incest, they got drunk on communion, they screamed at each other in tongues, and they didn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And yet, 1 Corinthians, first chapter, Paul begins his letter saying, I thank God in all my members. And he starts sharing evidences of God's grace that he sees them. So no matter what struggles with your friends or your kids are wrestling with, we should all be vigilant and looking for ways to encourage them, to encourage us to be. And we can do that. So let me ask you these questions. Are you better at complimenting or encouraging friends? Do you correct each other more than you commend each other? Are you consistently looking for God's activity in each other's lives? When someone encourages you, do you remember to give God the glory for the good that someone just saw? So where do we go from here? Let me simplify this application a bit. First, I don't think it's helpful to start thinking about all the ways our friends could be doing this better for us. You need to go to the people you wrote them at the beginning. And you need to ask them how they think you can go in one of these four ways. Maybe it might be immediately applying a question or being willing to hear a question. Look for one way that God is calling you to grow in one of these four practices. Just one. And let me encourage any of us who feel like we don't have friends to do this with yet. These essentials do take time. It takes time to cultivate friendships. It's a process. Relationships are not instantaneous. Trust is earned. Time needs to be taken. So be patient with one another. And don't despise the small things. Again, moms especially, if you see hints of this in your kids' lives, with friends that they have, celebrate Let them know. Encourage them. Remind them that's God. That's biblical. That's honoring Jesus. Celebrate that. Secondly, we need to make sure that we walk away from a message like this that covers a lot of things. It went all throughout the Bible, and most of us might be sort of trying to juggle a lot of content in our brains. When we walk away from something like this, we need to be not primarily aware of our weaknesses as friends or in our friendships. We even also need to be careful not to be tempted towards bitterness. These things are not present in our existing relationships. We need to walk away reminded sufficiency of Jesus. The friend of sinners. So I want to close us 
by reading a hymn by John McCree. And whatever your friendships look like for you, put that to the side and reflect on the beauty of your friendship with Jesus made possible because of the cross. And I'd like everybody to stand and close their eyes if that's possible. And clear your mind of people of hurt and discouragement, correction, condemnation. Just think about Jesus. Close your eyes. Think about Jesus. This is your friend. One there is We will love. 